Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Monday, the 27th of January, 2020. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm your host, Carmen LaBerge. Um, I think it's a, I think my best word for today, um, although we rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice, and this is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice in it. I, I would regard today as um, a pretty heavy day. It's This is a somber day. I was going to lead off this morning with a conversation about the Holocaust Memorial Day. Today is that day in um, in human history. Today is the day that we acknowledge the lives of those um, lost, taken. We also acknowledge the survivors of horribly incredible human depravity, uh, like places we call Dachau and Auschwitz. Today is Holocaust Memorial Day. That is a that is a worthy conversation for Christians to have today in the culture. Um, Seventy five years ago, and so the the number of people who are still alive who survived the Holocaust that number is um, getting smaller and smaller every day. And so hear their stories, listen to their stories, listen to those testimonies today. Uh, today is also um, the day on which we are going to talk about the March for Life, which took place on Friday. Um, and that's a somber conversation. You know, we're talking about 60 million lives terminated, and we're talking about the effort to change that reality here in the United States of America. But today's a somber day for an entirely different reason. Um, yesterday morning, 41-year-old basketball, I know, phenom, great. I don't, I don't even, I don't know that there's a word yet that the uh, greatest of all time that people have settled on um, to describe Kobe Bryant. Lakers great Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash yesterday, along with his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, and uh, seven others. They were flying in a fog that is now described as um, as so severe that it had grounded the LAPD police helicopters at that same time of the day. They were on their way to a basketball camp. Um, it's a Kobe Bryant camp, and so the pictures are now coming out of all of those young people and their parents and coaches on their knees um, at the news uh, of the helicopter crash yesterday morning. The story is tragic by any measure, and we are getting coverage of it wall-to-wall on almost every media outlet. Um, even in the midst of impeachment proceedings here in the United States of America, um, this will top the news today. Um, even in the midst of uh, global conversations about the coronavirus, this will top the news today. In the words of L.A. Times sports writer uh, Bill uh, Paskey, Kobe Bryant is gone. Uh, Those are the hardest words I have ever had to write for this newspaper. I still don't believe them as I'm writing them. I'm still crying. So go ahead. Let it out. Don't be embarrassed. Cry with me. Weep and wail and shout into the streets. Fill a suddenly empty Los Angeles with your pain. Thousands of people spontaneously gathered um, at the Staples Center, which is where the Lakers play basketball. But what happened to be going on at the same time was the Grammy Awards inside so it changed uh, the flavor and the nature of last night's Grammy Awards ceremony. 
Uh, and the word that is lifted up there by the L.A. Times sports writer and and the scene in front of the Staples Center, which was a scene of not only grief, but silence, thousands of people standing in silence. Because into death, there is there is for a secular culture just a void. There is only a void. Emptiness. That is what death leaves in its wake for people who do not know Jesus Christ. A hollowness, a hopelessness, a desperation, an emptiness. And so that emptiness is going to be filled, but by what? And I think that's where we as Christians step into the conversation today. We lean into the darkness and into the fear and into the void and into the questions others are asking, and we help people see the nearness of eternity. They're already mourning the brevity of life, but do they see the nearness of eternity? And do they know the one who is the bridge from here to there? And and I think equally uh, in our conversations today with those who are mourning the loss of a person they have never actually met, um, we have to also direct attention to the others whose lives were lost. We have to acknowledge that no one life is any, any less or more significant than any other life. The millions of people who died in, uh, in the Holocaust, the millions of lives taken through abortion um, are no less significant to the Lord our God than the life of Kobe Bryant. So while millions mourn the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, who was also famous because of him, we have to acknowledge the grief of, of, yes, his wife and his three surviving children and his parents and the kids who were at that basketball camp awaiting his arrival and on and on and on. But let us not fail to recognize seven other people died in that same crash yesterday. Their lives are no less worthy of recognition and grief and, uh, and their families are grieving no less today than the Bryant family. I mean, did you know Kobe Bryant? I mean, in actuality, any better than you knew the pilot or the college baseball coach or his wife or his daughter or the names of the three other people yet unreported? Life is life, and every human life is equally precious in God's sight. So we're going to have the opportunity today, somewhere, somewhere, at some time, you are going to have the opportunity today to speak into a conversation about life and death. Life and death. Holocaust Memorial. March for Life. Coronavirus. Kobe Bryant, death comes. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment, and we are going to do so as people who not only live as those prepared to die, but as Christians who live as those prepared to bring the gospel to bear today on conversations about life and death. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Friday was uh, this nation's March for Life, and there were um, thousands and thousands of people there, and they were, uh, well, they were greeted by an event unprecedented in our nation's history. The President of the United States, Donald Trump, addressed the March for Life in person. Um, that's the first time that has ever ever uh, ever happened, and it is significant. So let's um let's listen to some of the things that. President Trump told the crowd, and then we will, we will reflect on those. All of us here today understand an eternal truth. Every child is a precious and sacred gift from God. 
Together, we must protect, cherish, and defend the dignity and the sanctity of every human life. When we see the image of a baby in the womb, we glimpse the majesty of God's creation. When we hold a newborn in our arms, we know the endless love that each child brings to a family. When we watch a child grow, we see the splendor that radiates from each human soul. One life changes the world from my family. And I can tell you, I send love and I send great, great love. And from the first day in office, I've taken a historic action to support America's families and to protect the unborn. And during my first week in office, I reinstated and expanded the Mexico City policy, and we issued a landmark pro-life rule to govern the use of Title X taxpayer funding. I notified Congress that I would veto any legislation that weakens pro-life policies or that encourages the destruction of human life. At the United Nations, I made clear that global bureaucrats have no business attacking the sovereignty of nations that protect innocent life. Unborn children have never had a stronger defender in the White House. Okay, I think for the President of the United States to lead off his comments with a statement acknowledging that every child is a precious and sacred gift of God, um, and that, that he acknowledged that as an eternal truth, and that together we must protect, protect, cherish, and defend the dignity and sanctity of every human life. Um, those are not idle words. Those are words of powerful truth. Um, the president may have been reading a speech that someone else wrote, But those are now words recorded in his voice, and they will be a part of the presidential record of the United States of America forever. And it is um, it is significant. And I know that there are things that this president does that um, frustrate some of you. I know that I acknowledge that I acknowledge that sometimes when you hear the president saying the sanctity of every human life, when you hear him Um, talking about the need for other nations to take seriously the protection of innocent life. I know that you are uh, that you are hearing there um, a conflicted message, um, a message that runs contrary to his actions in some other um, arenas and areas. Immigration on the southern border would be one example of that or refugees around the world. I mean, we have examples. I, I understand that. But when the president says that unborn children have never had a stronger defender in the White House, he's right. And when he says that the Bible teaches us that each person is wonderfully made, he's right. He is speaking eternal truths, and they will now be recorded for all of human history. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to come back with um, another uh, cut from what the president said at the March for Life on Friday. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. So speak
Continuing our conversation about the March for Life that took place in, on Friday in Washington, D.C., let us uh, continue listening to the President of the United States. And as the Bible tells us, each person is wonderfully made. We have taken decisive action to protect the religious liberty, so important. Religious liberty has been under attack all over the world and, frankly, very strongly attacked in our nation. You see it better than anyone, but we are stopping it. And we're taking care of doctors, nurses, teachers, and groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor. We are preserving faith-based adoption. And to uphold our founding documents, we have confirmed 187 federal judges who apply the Constitution as written, including two phenomenal Supreme Court justices, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. We are protecting pro-life students' right to free speech on college campuses. And if universities want federal taxpayer dollars, then they must uphold your First Amendment right to speak your mind. And if they don't, they pay a very big financial penalty, which they will not be willing to pay. Okay, so what the president is... um is listing there are some of his, and it's interesting that he weaves this into the pro-life conversation, but he is talking here about um, concerns related to religious liberty. And for for those of us who are Christians, the conversations about uh, life and liberty are inextricably connected. And, and they are connected by the founders of our country as well. I mean, life, liberty, and what we describe as the pursuit of happiness uh, you know, the, that's right there for us in our founding documents. And so for the president to make this connection um, is not surprising. It is a little surprising that he pivoted so quickly away from um, an expressly pro-life conversation to a religious liberty conversation. But I, I think that he knows his audience pretty well here when he's talking. So let's just acknowledge that when we're talking about pro-life issues, we are talking about issues that end up before the courts. And this year, we've already begun discussing, but we will continue talking about those cases that rise from the local, then to the state, and then ultimately some of them to the level of the Supreme Court, where the the conversations about when life begins and whether or not uh, some people have the right to terminate the lives of some other people because uh, some of people are born and others are not yet born. Like, right, this is the conversation that is happening uh, in the court systems across the country. And as this president has the opportunity to appoint more and more judges um, to all levels of the federal bench, 187 federal judges already confirmed under the leadership of uh, President Trump and two Supreme Court justices, uh, you, you just simply have to recognize that for those of us who are concerned about life, those of us who are concerned about life, um, the appointment of these judges is is critical. It's very important. And so when we're talking about the protection of rights for, let's say, students or teachers or um, doctors, we have those conversations here on a regular basis with organizations across the country like CMDA, the Christian Medical and Dental Association, who are fighting every single day for the religious liberty, the the liberty of, of doctors to 
to do what God has uniquely called them to do, but to do so with the freedom of their own conscience, um, not bound by a government that would require them to do things contrary to their conscience, and particularly on the life front, um, not require them to participate not only in abortion on the front end of life, but not require them um, to carry out the suicidal desires of uh, of patients at the other end of life. And so when we talk about the pro-life movement, we're now not just talking about abortion. We are also talking about physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, and everything in between. We are talking about adoption. We are talking about foster care. We are talking about the concern for women. And so in that conversation, let's pivot to um, to one clip from Jeannie Mancini um, talking here at the—she's uh, the president uh, of, of the Right to Life. And let's, uh, let's hear Jeannie Mancini talk here at the March for Life on Friday. Abortion, ending the life of an innocent human being, is promoted as essential to women's freedom, empowerment, and progress. We know this message about women and abortion is both deceptive and hurtful. Mother Teresa said it best, abortion is profoundly anti-woman. Three-quarters of its victims are women, half the babies and all the mothers. Inspired by these pressing needs, our theme for the March for Life 2020 aims to change hearts and minds to make abortion unthinkable. Life empowers, pro-life is pro-woman. In the year ahead, as you just heard from the president, we celebrate the centennial of the 19th Amendment, which established a woman's right to vote. The 100th anniversary of the amendment where we remember and honor the early suffragists, those courageous early female leaders who recognized both the inherent dignity of women and the unborn. These great women knew that creatures, mother and baby, were not at odds with each other. Alice Paul referred to abortion as the ultimate exploitation of women. We recognize, as the suffragists did, that a woman's capacity to have a child is amazing, and it's inherent to who she is as a person. It's not a liability. It's a gift. Three-quarters of all the babies and all of the mothers are victims when we talk about uh, this topic of abortion. I spent my Saturday with, uh, with a woman who had an abortion a very long time ago, and she was a college-age person. Um, she's now a grandmother. But the the event that took the life of her first child um, is something that God awakened her to much later in her life when she when she came to authentic faith and began to recognize um, that every life is precious and created by God and only God who is the giver of life has the right to take it away. Um, these are conversations that we have to learn to have. This is not about condemning um, women who've had abortions. This is about becoming a people who value life and do so. Um, at all stages. And so I want to speak again a word of um, forgiveness humbly to those who are listening right now who have had abortions. I know you're out there. Um, I know you're many. And I want you to hear a word of grace and a word of comfort, acknowledging that as God um, pricks your conscience related to that in so many ways, um, we recognize the trauma you live with, and we also recognize that there's healing and there is hope and that you have a testimony. Um, and so I want to I just want to encourage you to connect with a post abortive ministry, connect with a, a local pregnancy center. There's all kinds of resources available. If you need direct connection to one of those resources, you can simply reach out to me via email. I'm Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Adam Carrington 
uh, about a number of things coming up before the, the Supreme Court. We're also going to just briefly touch base on the impeachment proceedings. Um, and yes, for those of you in Iowa, Iowa we're going to talk about the fact that um, your Hawk, Hawkeye caucus is now just a week away. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. For all of our live listeners in Waterloo, Cedar Rapids, uh, you you know this better than the rest of us. I don't know. Am I allowed to call it the Hawkeye Cockeye or not? Is that is that inappropriate, Paul? Well, I've heard that, other people know. use that. The Iowa Caucus or the Hawkeye Caucus. Such, well, I mean, it's it's a it's such a la- fun way to Latin say it. word. It shouldn't be. You know, okay. Yeah, anyway. All right. So no screaming from from those of you in Iowa, but the Hawkeye Cockeye, which is just frankly really fun to say, um, uh, is a week from today. Yes, one week away. So um, we we wanted to just touch base about what is happening um, in terms of the 2020 election cycle. Obviously, that leads us into a conversation about impeachment. I also want to touch base with Adam Carrington about Supreme Court cases that uh, that have recently been argued and sort of what's coming up next. So all of that with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Up next, you're on Mornings with Carmen. Matthew 627 says, can any of you add a single hour to the span of your life by worrying? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. No matter how hard we try, it's really hard not to worry about your kids. It's scary to watch your child choose the wrong things, but part of the reason God may allow your child to struggle through some things is to teach you to believe that He is in control and that you can trust Him. Jeremiah 17 says, Blessed is the man who puts his trust in the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water. Its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought. Do you find yourself weary from worry? Relax. God can be trusted. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Again, this morning is Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can follow him on Twitter at Carrington AM. Welcome back, sir. Hello. How are you all doing? Well, I hear we're second up today. You've already uh, you've already led off with another radio program, and I'm going to try to not be, you know, have my feelings hurt about that. Uh, save the best for last. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yeah. Okay, let's um, yeah. let's talk about the um, Iowa caucuses. Only a week away. Um, and I think that that will lead us into a conversation about uh, potentially how the ongoing impeachment hearings affect that process, because we have some candidates who, you know, can't really be out there working, um, working the districts because they are tied up uh, in Senate proceedings. So talk with us a little bit about how a caucus maybe is different than a primary um, and what we can expect, not only in Iowa, but in other places as this primary process unfolds. Right. Uh, Caucuses don't happen as much anymore. There's a few other states that do them. And it's not like a primary that looks like a general election where you walk in and you vote. But the only difference being you pick which party or no party that you vote for uh, to choose the the, the candidate for, for that party for the general election. Um, it, it, the Iowa process is a little uh, strange in that um, there will be all these different 
uh, uh, locations that people will go to. They will uh, go through a process of sorting who they vote for in person where everyone can see who everyone else is possibly supporting. Um, it, it's sort of a bit like a meeting where people are almost negotiating their votes for who they, who they vote for. I really would suggest if people are interested, watch the process as it plays out, but the result is still the same. There's going to be votes in the end counted by those locations. Once all the dust settles, for the different candidates. And uh, it'll be interesting given that it's only really in these smaller states like Iowa that things like that can go on because uh, 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 the logistics of, uh, of having those kind of uh, uh, sort of town meeting processes that result in votes rather than just walking in and, and pulling a lever. All right. For all of our listeners in uh, Waterloo and Cedar Rapids, um, smaller states like Iowa was not a slur. Uh, that just meant that you have smaller communities that have the opportunity to gather together in ways that some of us who live in more metropolitan areas do not. Correct. I, I would say, I, I would say, <laughs> yes, I, I grew up in a very small town and uh, I will say that uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, who um, was one of the, the interest, uh, you know, important French commentators on America said, one of the strengths of America is the town hall system, the town meeting system, because it builds uh, uh, the conditions and practice of self-government and therefore of liberty. So if anything, you could say that the way the Iowa caucuses go is, a uh, showing of their independence, self-government, and liberty above and beyond maybe what some of the rest of us get to practice uh, uh, every four years. I just, I love it. Okay, so I want to talk about the approach that some of the candidates are taking um, in terms of their approach to people of faith. Talk with us a little bit about um, Pete Buttigieg and sort of his understanding or and his presentation of the gospel in the midst of this uh, political process. Right. And I think it's interesting to point him out because there, there's a large, sw there's a perception, and it's not entirely unearned at all, that uh, the Democratic Party is becoming the secular party, that it is becoming increasingly, therefore, antagonistic to people of faith and the priorities of people of faith, um, you know, uh, including things like the March for Life that recently happened. But uh, what's interesting is that uh, Buttigieg has tried uh, to articulate um, uh, how he believes that a, a, a much more left-leaning political ideology is not uh, uh, contrary to, to the gospel, not contrary to Christianity, but completely in conformity with it. And I think what's interesting is he actually is able to speak the language of Christianity, uh, uh, the categories, the, the quote scripture— in a way that shows that he, he's not, he has, he didn't have a staffer look up a verse. Um, and I'm not saying that that means his interpretation is correct. I have a number of disagreements with it, but it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think it's hard to argue that the American people are ever going to go as a mass completely secular. Um, and that there will be some always a role. Human beings desire to worship God, even if they worship him wrongly. And I think that uh, uh, the Democratic Party would be well advised that if they're going to uh, continue, that, that, that they should look at arguments like he makes, where they try to uh, uh, incorporate uh, and align their views with uh, at least some reading of Christianity, regardless, like I said, of whether I agree with it or not. Yeah, I think a couple of uh, of things for people to be wary of, like when a person describes God um, in 
in overly personal terms, as if their creator is somehow distinct from the God who is revealed in Scripture. Like that, you know, that's a warning sign to me. Like I I would point that out in a conversation should I ever have the opportunity to have one. Um, and then this idea that Scripture has any number of um, available interpretations. I mean, the reality is, Adam, if if it's the Word of God, then it means something. And it means whatever God means by it. It doesn't mean just anything that you and I, from our own personal experience and desires, might make of it. And so I think that as we're seeking to equip our listeners to engage the matters of the day in ways that genuinely honor God, we have to be willing to um, be critical when even a person as public as Pete Buttigieg says things that are actually contrary to what we know to be the truth. Well, and I would say on that, just two quick things that one, I think that's that's true, even if you believe, don't believe in the Bible, but the rule of law, uh, mm. words are supposed to tell us like laws are supposed to tell us how we should conform our lives, what is justice. We shouldn't be manipulating it for our own personal ends. That's that's tyranny and that's uh, relativism. And it's even more the case when you believe, as I, I know we do, that that the that those words are the word, very words of God. They should be dictating to us, and we should be able to believe that they can dictate to us. That the perspicuity of Scripture, to use a a, a, a big term, the uh, that 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 it is clear in what it needs to be clear on is, I think, a fundamental idea. And on that, I, I what I would criticize uh, Buttigieg in particular about is on abortion. That his argument that um, breath is uh, when life begins, I think, is a a pretty stretchy reading of the the the, the poetic description of create of the creation of man in Genesis that doesn't accord necessarily with what a human being is from Scripture or when human beingness uh, begins from Scripture's perspective. All right, extra credit today. If you can use perspicuity in a sentence, you can send me your sentence uh, via text at 877-933-2484, or you could email me your sentence, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. The word of the day is now perspicuity. We'll be right back. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College and I are going to pivot. We're going to have a conversation about the impeachment proceedings and the cases before the Supreme Court. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, our, our first sentence um, submitted via email is from Linda. She actually uses the word perspicuitous, not the word perspicuity, so I don't know if she fails the assignment just by simply not doing it right. But she's, I kind of like the sentence, so I'm going to say it. Carmen is perspicuitous, bringing clarity to what is otherwise blurred and obscured to me. There you go. Perspicuity, word of the day. Dr. Adam Carrington is with us. He is helping us understand what's happening in the world and to do so through a biblical lens, a biblical worldview, helping us to gain clarity. And so he, too, is perspicuitous. Am I using that word correctly in a sentence? Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I, and I, I, well, as long as I actually am clear, maybe you're just making a false <laughs> statement. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk a little bit about impeachment. People are going to hear a lot about this today in terms of the ongoing conversation about whether or not the Senate will bring forth witnesses into this process. But give us some thoughts on the constitutional um, arguments that each side is making. Yeah, I think uh, there's two levels that I found really interesting. Uh, obviously, there's the facts of the case that people have to wade through uh, this particular instance. But uh, two issues. One is what is a high crime and misdemeanor? And we had this debate during the Clinton impeachment as well. And does it involve an actual 
crime in the statute books or can it be abuse of power? Can it be obstruction of Congress? And we're going to hear a lot about that today. We heard a lot about from Trump's lawyers where we heard a lot about this past week. The other one is um, this, the, the interaction of separation of powers between Congress and the presidency. The Constitution has said we the people want the, the president to conduct foreign policy well. Well, what does he need? And he says, uh, this president says, I need absolute uh, secrecy for what I do if I want to keep things secret. So therefore, I shouldn't give Congress anything. Uh, the House has basically said, we have the right to impeach if we think something's wrong. What do we need to do that? We need information about presidential conduct. So you should be able to tell us, you should have to tell us everything anything you do. And I think those two extremes, I, I think both are right in and of themselves. Congress has the should have the means to uh, conduct investigations to uh, further their impeachment power. I think the president has some secrecy that he should be able to have uh, with his own officials uh, and with other government officials from other governments. But the extreme version that both are making, one, the founders would have said, yeah, uh, each institution is going to overstate its case to protect itself. Uh, but the other is, I, I wish we were doing a better job of trying to say, well, it's somewhere in the middle, but we've really got to figure out how do we balance both of these claims. And I think uh, uh, that's one thing that I, I wish was getting worked out even more in this process is where does one side's power and the other side's power start and begin or start and end? Until so we're talking at some level, about the branches of government and how they are, uh, how the founders imagined they would interact with one another. Sometimes I feel like, Adam, we are so far removed from um, from the founding. Um, even when people refer to Senate, the Senate and senators today, I mean, in in the original formula, I mean, wasn't the Senate constituted differently than it is today? <laughs> uh, yes. And how especially how it was elected. Uh, That's I don't what know I'm. You... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, 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 remind uh, for, us of that. For most of its history and the way it was constructed, people did not directly vote for senators ever. What they did is senators were chosen by state legislatures. So you would vote for your own House and Senate or however you divide up your state legislature, and then they would vote on who the senators were. And, and the purpose of that was twofold. One, to make sure that the Senate was more state-centric, and that's partly also why it still has two per state. Uh, but to make it more state-centric to protect state interests, and I think when you got rid of that in the early uh, 20th century, like they did with the 17th Amendment, uh, that's partly why the states don't aren't able to protect their interests as much. But the other was to, uh, for the same reason that they're in office for six years, not two like the House, to have a little more distance from the day-to-day -day passions, the day-to-day -day sort of uh, 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 reactions, uh, impulses that people have to say, okay, we're going to have them one more step removed so they can be a little bit of a cooling chamber to make sure that we're not acting too hastily or too uh, uh, impulsively. And that's also by the way, in impeachment, why there's a two-thirds requirement for them to convict and remove as opposed to a majority for the House. Uh, the, the, the wisdom of the founders was to construct the House and Senate differently 
so that they have different mindsets, different ways of operating, so that if they can both agree on the same thing, it's probably wiser because it's probably been taken from different angles. And I think, uh, uh, un, I, I, you know, this might not be popular. I would be fine going back to the old system, not because I don't believe in rule of the people, but I believe that the founders were wise and how they channeled the rule of the people in the way that the Senate was was chosen in the past. Okay, so we have looked at the White House and um, and and this next election cycle. We have looked now briefly at uh, at Congress. So let's take a quick view down the street at what's happening at the Supreme Court. What happened this week? Uh, the big case, and, and, and we talked about this a little bit as a preview, was the Espinoza case out of Montana. And that's the case that um, Montana tried to make it so that taxpayers could give a donate, you know, give some of their uh, uh, money, uh, tax, be tax credited toward private uh, scholarships, scholarships for kids to go to private schools, including religious schools, because of these things called Blaine Amendments, which were we talked before, were mainly put in case to in place to undermine Catholic schools in the past. Uh, it was said that 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 this funding couldn't even indirectly go to a religious school. And so the court uh, decided, is this a violation of the free exercise clause? Is this discriminating against religion? And I'll just say uh, one thing I found really interesting listening to the oral arguments is uh, a a case that uh, justices like Kagan and Ginsburg and Sotomayor were really pushing was that uh, the mothers of children wanting to get these scholarships to send their kids to Christian schools didn't have what's called standing, didn't have a right to be there because they weren't the ones actually being directly injured. It was the taxpayers who were losing the tax credit. Now, that may sound boring, um, but here's why I think you should be interested. Why would they make that argument up front? Why would they focus on that technicality? I think it's because they believe on the merits, on the actual argument. Should uh, government be treating Christian schools equally to other private schools? They don't think they have the votes. Uh, they really think they're losing, and so they're trying to win on, I think, what this is more of a technicality or or more of a procedural, I shouldn't say technicality, procedural argument, which I think shows that there's a, a majority on the court saying you should be able to treat, Christian schools should get the same treatment as other schools, and, and I think that's why they're making, I think that's why that seemingly technical point is uh, 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 sort of illuminates why the court actually is on the side substantially with these mothers and, and these Christian schools. All right, Adam, you and I don't have time to talk today um, about the 1619 project and the pushback it's getting. Um, but I want to talk about that in the future in terms of how we remember history, uh, certainly on this Holocaust Memorial Day, uh, you know, never forgetting and remembering and remembering what really happened is important. We've had headlines in the last week about the National Archives uh, blurring some photographs so that people would maybe remember particular events differently than they actually happened. Um, And so can we talk about that at, at a later date? Like how how do we collectively remember things and who is helping us do so accurately versus, you know, the ways in which history might be interpreted and reinterpreted along the way? I think that would be a valuable conversation for us to have. I would love to do that. And I think underneath that, why that matters, because of how much who we have been defines who we are and what we must try to be in the future. Amen. All right. Adam Carrington, Hillsdale College. You guys can find him on Twitter at Carrington AM. We'll be right back.
All right, friends. So it is um, Holocaust Memorial Day. Um, you're going to have opportunities to have conversations today uh, about Kobe Bryant. You may have opportunities to have conversations today about the March for Life, which took place on Friday. You may, um, like me, have opportunities to have conversations with a friend who, um, you know, maybe their child was in an accident and their life was preserved. And it's an opportunity to talk about life and death. Um, you may get uh, the opportunity today to talk with a friend who is getting um, a very frightening diagnosis. We certainly want to be praying for those in each and every one of these circumstances. And we want to be people who are equipped to speak life. We want to speak life. There's going to be a lot of growing fear um, related to the coronavirus and things that people are hearing about that and the possibility of a global pandemic. Into all of that, we need to be people who speak life. We also need to be people who um, can reconnect the eternal with the everyday and actually uh, help people see things through the lens of, uh, of eternity. So how do we do that? How do we um, become the kind of people who see so clearly? We see things so clearly that we are then able to um, speak with clarity into the confusion of our day. I believe that that happens by spending time in the presence of the living God, who not only knows the truth, but shares it with us. And he does so through the Bible, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And so let me encourage you to be in the word of God today before you are in the world that God so loves. Let's bring the gospel to bear today um, in, in our conversations and in simply in the way that we are walking our faith out into the world that God so loves. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We have a second hour coming up next. Thanks for joining us. You can always visit us online at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.